0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: On the one hand, it is this thing on the edge of society where these outsiders come. And I love this phrase of a city that moves by night and set up. And so there's sort of this conflict and it attracts people who were marginal in some way, but it is also a family and people travel and live in and live in RVs and the typical things you would see in a family also. So I think that the circus is the tension. But what is so magical about the circus is that when the circus people and the townies, as we call them, go under the tent, they participate in the shared narrative of, of adventure, and the idea of doing extraordinary things, which is fundamentally what the circus is all about. And I love that about it, which is this shared, we're going to enter this world, and together we're going to build something magical. I think that that's beautiful.
0: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at UnmistakableCreative.com.
1: Bruce, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you. I'm flattered by your invitation, and I'm looking forward to seeing where this goes. Well, you know, I think that anytime
0: somebody else refers at another guest to me, I don't really even bother to look at what their story is about because I almost always know that if somebody else refers to them, it's going to be great. And you were referred by AJ Jacobs, who is, you know, one of those people who's just amazing in so many different ways. So I kind of. A pr- a right prince
1: now. of a man in every single way. Well, AJ J.
0: Jacobs is like the most interesting human being alive almost, you know, like the way he approaches his work and, and you know, everything else. But. Uh, speaking of work, I I think that funny enough, you know, as many times as I've asked this question, this one is actually very relevant to the content of your book. But that is, what did your parents do for work, and how did that end up shaping and influencing the choices that you've made, and, and you know, what you ended up doing with your life? And your
1: oh my God, I love this question because I have personally asked it hundreds of times. This was essentially the first question I asked in these in the what I call the work story project. And and it's interesting because I'll tell you how I'm going to answer your question by telling you what I learned in asking this question, right? Right. Okay. So what's happening is I'm starting this process where I'm going to interview people about work. And I, you know, like you, I don't really know what I'm going to find. So I'm going to start asking questions. And so, okay, I'm going to start with the question you just asked me. And so I start asking people like, what were the way I phrased it was, what were the the values or upsides about work you learn from your parents. Mm -hmm. And what I learned in asking this question is that the answers were uninteresting, right? Because basically (laughs) everybody, later I coded it and it was like 67%, but basically everybody said, I learned the value of hard work. Yeah. And so, look, as somebody who asks questions for a living, to me, the only metric about, I I recently spoke to some high school journalists and I said, look, Mm -hmm. the only metric to evaluate a successful question is the quality of the answers. So you may be highfalutin and you may think you've got the perfect question, but if the answers are not helping you or not revealing, then it's your fault. The questions are the problem. Mm -hmm. So I decided, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not getting at the thing I'm trying to get at, even even though I don't know what I'm trying to get at. So then Mm -hmm. I started asking, what were the downsides or the shadows of work yeah. that you learned from your parents? And that's when it got interesting. Okay. So mm. with that preamble, I'm going to now answer your question. So I grew up in <laughs> Savannah, Georgia. Savannah, oh, no. Georgia. And um, my father was in a family business. His father had been a kind of a country lawyer who defended anybody that he could defend when he was a Jewish lawyer in a kind of, you know, still backwater Savannah, Georgia, where that was not necessarily a kind of a a, a ticket to traditional avenues of success and achievement. So he he defended pornographers. He defended criminals. He defended murderers because that was the only work he could get. And then he started in the 50s a small building company called the Home Loan Company. And my father, who grew up in Savannah also, went to the University of Pennsylvania, joined the Navy, married my mother, who had grown up in Baltimore, Maryland, or Baltimore, as the people from Baltimore actually say it. And his father, my father's father, summoned them back right when my father got out of the Navy. And my mother resented it her whole life, that, that my father could have done anything, could have gone anywhere. He had this Ivy League education. And and she was dragged against her will back to Savannah, okay? So what did I learn? What were the upsides in my frame? You know, what did I, what did my parents do and what did I learn? I learned the value of hard work. In fact, every mm-hmm. Saturday when I was a kid, I used to have to get dressed up. I mean, not like a suit and tie, but like, you know, corduroys and a button-down shirt and go behind the house that I grew up in to my grandparents' house And my grandmother would make breakfast. You know this because you read my book and it's the opening. And then I would get in the car with my father and he would drive five miles an hour for a trip that should have taken seven minutes and took 17. And I would sit in this family office, a cinder block building in downtown Savannah, Georgia, which they were in the real estate business and they owned apartments and built one-bedroom houses for low-income families using government subsidy. And I would take... 18, 20, $22 rent payments and enter them in a ledger. And my father, my grandfather in, you know, polished, tied Oxford shoes and uh, suspenders and a bow tie would sit behind me, right? And look over my shoulder and tell me, look them in the eye and like shake their hands and ask about their families. And he would brag about my, my good grades and my penmanship. And then we would get back in the car and we would make this return trip. And then he would tell stories about growing up in Mississippi and uh, the first job he had, and the first car he was in, and the first time he was experienced air conditioning, and the first time he was in an airplane, and the and the message was very, very clear. Son, yeah, you know, the most important thing in life is work, not family, not love, not relationships, not happiness, not meaning, like we all have today, but work. But I didn't want to do that work, and that was a challenge. And my mother was a creative person. She was a painter and an artist and an art teacher. Who worked in an art museum. And she was totally stymied by the culture of Savannah, Georgia at the time where women were not expected to do these things or work outside the home or express themselves or or have their own viewpoints in any way. And this was the tension in my life between the kind of the dutiful path I was expected to follow and the more creative, risky, nonlinear linear in the language of today, path that I wanted to follow. And so this tension is what in some ways has defined my whole relationship uh, with work and in its own way, I think, shaped the questions I was asking and ultimately, I think, the themes that I heard when I was asking those questions.
0: Yeah. Well, so many questions come from that alone. Uh, I think it was Daniel Levitin who had told me about sort of, you know, Jewish parents and Indian parents and in similarities. He said, you know, it's like doctor lawyer, engineer failure. Uh-huh. And he told me this joke. He said that you know, some Jewish mother is at the uh, presidential inauguration and her son is the vice president. And she looks and turns to somebody sitting next to her and says, that's my son up there. You know, he could have been a doctor. Uh, and I'm curious, <laughs> like, you know, for you, what that narrative was around your household uh, wasn't kind of the typical Jewish kid slash Indian kid slash Asian kid narrative. The other thing uh, I'm really curious about is growing up in Savannah, Georgia, at the time that you did as a Jewish person, what did your parents explicitly or implicitly teach you about sort of race and, and bias and those kinds of things?
1: Well, let me take those in reverse order. Um, yeah. So I do believe that being Jewish in the South turns out to have been uh, a a sort of defining aspect of my identity and even more specifically a kind of chief motivation of the work that I've ended up doing Uh, because I grew up loving the South. Um, I love the familiness. I love the stickiness. I love the storytelling-ness. Like I love all of that, not to mention the college football and and a lot of those and and the barbecue. But yet I grew up Jewish in the South. And so therefore I grew up apart from that. So I, I was a part of the culture, but I was apart from the culture uh, at the same time. I also love being Jewish. I love the familiness and the stickiness and the storytellingness. right. There's a sort of a parallel there. But yet I grew up Jewish, not just an American Jew and therefore, you know, kind of separate from the long narrative of, of, of Jewish life, which began in the Middle East and then spread through North Africa and the Middle East and Europe and then didn't get to America for 2000 years. But I also even grew up from the American Jewish tradition, which was largely based in you know, New York and, and the Northeast. So I grew up a part of that culture, but apart from that culture at the same time. And so what have I done with my life? You know, I, in some ways, followed that same journey. Like, okay, I grew up in the South. Then I left there. I went to Yale. So therefore, I'm going back to the Northeast, uh, where my mother was from, uh, and uh, and my father had gone to school. And then I went from there to Japan in the 80s, and I started writing letters home, and I'm older than you are, but on crinkly airmail paper, okay? Like, like, you know, did you ever write a letter on airmail paper? You know, I,
0: I was thinking about the, the last time I wrote a letter to a friend, one of my best friends from college. She
1: oh, wait, right, that's You've never even written a letter. You're of an age. So you never even wrote a letter, unless on, on crinkly onion skin airmail paper. I <laughs> maybe have written a letter, but definitely not on that airmail paper. But you know what? My
0: parents... Came to America uh, or to left India in the late seventies, so I know what you're talking about. Because that was how my parents communicated. And
1: and (laughs) the way it was, the the thing about those letters is the paper was very thin, right? Because of the costs, that's why it was air mail, right, as opposed to ship mail. And the pad of paper would have lines on it so that it wouldn't get all squiggly. And so I, I go to Japan. uh, I'm having a homestay. I like. I wake up the next. They serve me liver pie. dinner like I would eat everything but liver and so I left you know but I ate the liver pie because I was trying to make a good impression with my homestay family and the next morning I woke up i learned my first lesson about life in Japan which is that breakfast is leftovers from the night before so on a Sunday morning I was served a piece of cold liver pie and I got up and I wrote this letter home and it was basically you're not going to believe what happened to me and I basically started sending them every few days for months and when I got back to Georgia six months later Everywhere I went, people said, I loved your letters. And I was like, great. Have we met? And it turns out that my grandmother had Xeroxed them and passed them around. And they went viral in a kind of 1980 sense of the word. <laughs> and I thought, well, if this is that interesting to me and all these people, like, I should write a book about this. I didn't know anyone had ever written a book. And it doesn't happen this way. But I saw my first book at 24. That's almost 35 years ago and then that set me off in this life of like entering worlds and writing about them okay and this is all that I've done now I've never held a job in the last mm-hmm. you know 30 plus years so what mm-hmm. do I think that is that's becoming a part of something but being apart from it at the same time so I'm I'm the kind of person who like has a foot in the in this immersive world I enter, which in my case was Japan and then Oxford and Cambridge, and I spent a year as a circus clown, and I spent a decade going back and forth to the Middle East writing books about religion and can we get along in the, in the kind of conflicts of interfaith relations. So I enter worlds, become a part of them as much as possible, and then leave them, separate myself. <laughs> I'm now apart from them and share what I learned with people who might be interested and want to immerse themselves in these worlds. And that, I believe, fundamentally, comes from being a Jew from Georgia.
2: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash
3: ACAST.
4: A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times.
0: Okay, there's no way I'm going to let go of the fact that you mentioned you spent a year working as a circus clown. You're going to tell me about that. Today. What in the world did you learn from that? And What do we not know? Like, what do we see? Because circuses are such bizarre sort of subcultures to be like. All I remember about a circus from one podcast guest, he was a guy who uh, basically helped guys pick up girls by teaching them how to dance. And I, you know, like went from college to a circus art school and I asked him what it was like, and he said, Mastrini, he's like, you want to see lots of beautiful women? He's like, go to a circus school.
1: I'm like, wow. Well, I, I should tell your listeners that you, one of your devotions to your listeners is that you want to hear your interviews as your listeners hear your interviews. And therefore you don't use this feature that is on the platform on which we're recording this, where you can see me. Because if you could see me, you would see a picture behind me of me on a camel juggling, which links those two parts of my life, the part of me that you know, rode camels around the Middle East for a decade and the part of me that juggled in the circus uh, for a year. So I grew up, um, uh, I learned to juggle when I was a kid and I used to joke that I put myself through high school by doing mime birthday parties. And so I sort of always had this dream of joining the circus. And after many years of living abroad, I came back and I thought, well, this is a great way to learn about America. So I spent a year in the Clyde Biddy Cold Brothers Circus. And I did uh, uh, we did 16 states, 99 cities. I did 501 circuses in the course of a year. And I will tell you, it is the most magical and fascinating world. Because on the one hand, it has what I call the seven circus sins which in the year that I was in the circus, um, and by the way, I did write a book about this called Under the Big Top. But in the year that I was in the circus, we had murder, rape, arson, bigamy, bestiality, group sex, and organized crime. Okay, so that's the seven circus sins. But we also had two Tupperware parties, three births, a wedding, a funeral, right? So on the one hand, it is this thing on the edge of society where these outsiders come, and I love this phrase of a city that moves by night and set up. And so there's sort of this conflict and it attracts people who were marginal in some way, but it is also a family and people travel and live in and live in RVs and the typical things you would see in a family also. Gets. So I think that the circus is the tension. But what is so magical about the circus is that when the circus people and the townies, as we call them, go under the tent, they participate in the shared narrative of of adventure, and the idea of doing extraordinary things, which is fundamentally what the circus is all about. And I love that about it, which is this shared, we're going to enter this world, and together we're going to build something magical. I think that that's beautiful. But since you said you're not going to let the circus go, I'm not going to let a story about work and the circus go because... And I haven't told this story in, God, I can't, maybe a very long time. Years ago, I was at one, I was actually at a Renaissance weekend, like one of these sort of fancy gatherings of people. And I was seated next to, and I won't say his name, but put it this way. He was the founder of Sam Adams Beer. And (laughs) like you, I can get going on questions. And so we're, I don't know, an hour into a dinner. And I have asked him question after question after question, which I deeply enjoy. This is my life's work now, asking people questions. And not a single time did he ask me a question. And I was and was just sort of fascinating. Okay, like you just love telling stories about yourself. So I'm like, I'm going to do a test. And my test was, I'm going to start dropping in circus stories. (laughs) (laughs) And if you can't ask a question about that, then you really are not interested in getting to know me. So I started just randomly talking. Oh, yeah, when I was in the circus, this happened. Or when I was in the circus, that happened. And he never turned and said what you did. So again... You're now my hero and I, I'm saluting you and embracing you for, I, I wasn't even doing it intentionally, but for not letting something like the circus go by without pausing to talk about it.
4: No, there's
0: no way I could do like, you know, I I, I like weird, you know, quirky things. I was like, wait, what? The circus? I was like, I have to hear about that. Um, well, let's, let's actually get into the the content of the book because I think one of the places I'm to start is you went to Yale. And I went to Berkeley and one of the things you say in the opening of the book is that the huge flaw in the myth of success we've been sold is that it gazed too explicitly and elevated too reflexively on only one type of hero and one measure of achievement. The only way to be successful is always push ahead, march forward, reach higher, get more. I don't know about you. I'd imagine it's, it was very similar at Yale because um, my sister was a, a did a residency at Yale, but. That's kind of the default narrative of the average Berkeley undergrad, at least when I was there. And even when you watch the kids uh in the uh, you know, documentary about the college admission scandal, the way they, you know, either are just jumping for joy or absolutely devastated. Like I remember getting the big, big envelope, but I didn't, you know, run out of my parents' lawn and like jump for joy. I was like, oh, I got into Berkeley. Uh, so talk to me about that. Like, particularly in that environment, uh, how is it that you manage to not be so conditioned by sort of the, the default narrative in an environment like that.
1: Well I love this question and it hits close to home, I have to say, because I um I have identical twin daughters, as you know. Um, but as you may not know, they just turned 18 three weeks ago and they just accepted college admission a week ago. So we have been in what I have been calling the college application death march for the last year. And I think that one of the interesting things that's going on in the, in the kind of the Gen Z world is, uh, is this wrestling over this because you know, the, uh, these elite universities have gone through m- kind of multiple phases. First, they used to be all male essentially until the late 1960s. And then they started admitting women. So suddenly half the people that used to get in were not getting in anymore. And, but even until a decade ago, these institutions were still uh, primarily white. And that has changed uh, dramatically uh, in the last uh 10 years and in the last several years in particular so I, and i think that they it has forced these institutions to ask even more you know with more challenge and focus what kinds of students do they want to admit and and how do they look at at success so with that preamble let me let me set the stage here so again if you could if you could see me i'm sitting at my desk here in brooklyn and when I set out to write a book about work, um, and, and as you know, just to set the stage a little bit, like I, I, I actually at a, my thirtieth college reunion at Yale in 2017, I, in fact, I'll tell that story because you like a, you, you like stories, and this was a very meaningful story that appeared in my last book, Life Is in the Transitions, that you may not know. I was moderating a panel of prominent classmates, and I was driving from Brooklyn to New Haven, and. Um, I was driving with a, a friend, classmate, and neighbor, and he was closing a four hundred million dollar real estate deal and He oh. was on top of the world, but he was toggling between de- conversations about closing that deal and conversations that left him in tears because the previous day he had a partner who had a nine month old and the nine month old went down for a nap and never woke up and oh, jeez, so he is a and heartbroken, wrenching, crying in this car ride. And so we get to, we get to uh, campus in New Haven. I have resumes that were very impressive of the people in 250 people in this room. And I, and I had the microphone, I was moderating and I said, you know what? I ripped up the resumes and I said, losers don't come to their college reunion. I don't want to hear about your successes. Tell that to your mother. I want to hear about your struggles and what keeps you awake at night. And that night. It took me two hours to walk from the bar at one end of the tent to the other because person after person came up to me and said, my wife went to the hospital and died the next morning. Uh, my daughter cut herself and tried to take her own life. Uh, my brother was diagnosed with stage four this. I'm being sued for malpractice. Like, I, you know, I, I can't, my partner has stolen money from me. And I left that, this is a drop dead true story. I left that limping because I have, you know, leg problems because I have ca- had cancer in my leg as a young adult. And I called my wife and I said, no one knows how to tell their life story anymore. And I want to do something to help. And what I did has now been to devote the last six years of my life to collecting and analyzing life stories of Americans of all backgrounds, all walks of life, all 50 states. In the world of narrative psychology, which is sort of the academic field that this is adjacent to, you know, a typical paper of 10, 12 Life stories. I've done 400 now in six years, and for the last two or three years, I've been focused exclusively uh, on uh, the topic of work, and that really is the the heart um, of what I'm doing today. And so, to now answer your question, at the start of this project, I'm like, okay, I'm writing a book about work. I should like get the greatest books on the history of work, and I should read them. And so, I ordered them all. Some of them I had in my house. Some of them I ordered right off of the internet, and I. And I had the great books about success, about finance, about work. And then one day I looked at them and I realized that they all had one thing in common. They were written by white men. And so I did this thing, which I had never done before. I stacked the five most prominent success books of the last century. Okay, that includes the um, How to Win Friends and Influence People, The Power of Positive Thinking, What Color Is Your Parachute, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I turned every page I analyzed every name, tracked them down, and the bottom line is that 93% were straight white men, only 7% were women, and 0.009% were minorities, uh, people of color, people of different ethnic backgrounds. It is astonishing. So I think before we talk about how success is changing, we just have to pause and accept, as you just quoted uh, the search as saying, that the story we've been telling has been single-minded, focused on only one type of person, and frankly, I actually think cruel. Mm -hmm. I mean, the only people, even the only blacks mentioned in those books, right, are like a, a colored maid, right, a chef, a jazz singer. It's an astonishing cliche, and yet it is the core problem, that the story about work we've been saying, as you just mentioned, is all about up. Yeah. Right. Rags to riches up by your bootstraps, higher floor, bigger office, greater salary, better view. And I'm here to tell you, if you remember only one thing uh, from this conversation, is that the people who are happiest and find most meaning and get the success on their own terms, what they have in common is they don't climb. They dig. They do what you started me doing in this conversation, which is what I started in my conversations, which is they go back to their childhood and realize that we've all had these dreams we've been nurturing and this scripture of work that we've been cultivating, and we have a story we have been trying to tell. But as you've said several times in this conversation, because of our parents, because of our culture, because of the institutions, because of the expectations of society, we don't often chase our own dreams. We chase someone else's dreams, and that is responsible that is the main reason that 70% of the people are unhappy with what they do. And three quarters of people in a poll released five days ago said that they plan to look for work in the next 12 months.
6: Wow.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting because I, I distinctly remember that part of the book. And as we're talking about this, it just reminds me of something, you know, one of my mentors, uh, Greg Cornel, used to say, he would always say there's this sort of distinction between What is probable and what is possible? And he said, you know, we look at these sort of role models that we put on pedestals and we read books about these successful people. And, you know, I think that the, the big sort of thing after, you know, a thousand interviews and a thousand self-help books that I realized is that when we look at that advice as sort of just blanket prescriptive advice, we fail to consider the context in which that advice is given. And we think nice. to ourselves, oh, you know what? I, I remember very distinctly. I was with my dad and it was right after I graduated from business school. I just started the podcast and, um, yeah, you know, my dad's like, oh, well, not everybody can be the next Steve Jobs. And that really pissed me off because I was like, oh, well, you don't tell my sister. She can't be any kind of doctor she wants to be. And lo and behold, if you go to my Medium feed, you'll see I wrote an article titled, you're probably not going to be the next Steve Jobs over at Beyonce. Um. Because I think that that's the the thing that struck me most, particularly when we talk about the, this kind of literature around success, is that, you know, outliers are the role models. And I, I think even Paul Graham in his essay on wealth said outliers are not good examples to follow. Yet, if you think about it, nobody writes books about people who mm. didn't amount to shit and year, spent years busting their assets.
6: Like those aren't the people we put on covers of magazines.
1: Well, I think that what's there's a lot in that. Uh, um, I, I think that there, and there's a lot of beauty in that. And I think there's a lot to, 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 to spotlight in what you said, right? Because what I hear in what you just said, in terms of sitting where I'm sitting, of listening to people, uh, talking about work for the last three years, thousands of hours of interviews, right? I've done. 1,500 hours of interviews, 10,000 pages of transcripts. I've hired two different teams of 12 people to analyze them. I'm hearing a lot. I'm hearing, you know, East Asian, South Asian, Jewish <laughs> cultures, right? I'm hearing parents, right? I'm hearing institutions, right? That is that is what I call, um, I've come to call, actually, uh, the script of work that we are handed. Okay, script theory it's actually not something I knew a lot about before I started this project, but I'm fascinated by it. So script theory, basically, to geek out on the science, because I know you like that kind of stuff. The, the script theory is basically, we have a script of going to a restaurant, right? We know you go in, you either sit down or you wait to be seated. You look at the menu, you order something, the food comes, there's some interaction. Uh, then you finish your meal, you pay for your meal, and then you leave. That's a script of eating in a restaurant. No one ever teaches this teaches us that script. It's mm-hmm. something that we just internalized by watching, by doing it ourselves, by seeing it in, in movies and now social media. So we all inherit a script of eating in a restaurant. Well, in the same way we inherit a script about work right from looking at our parents right from uh listening in the, uh, 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 around the whatever cultures we grew up in by going to the institutions that we go to by looking at the same magazines you mentioned now by listening to the podcasts um uh that you alluded to so we inherit this script but we also have this other thing right that's the script that i inherited when i was growing up okay you get dressed up Five and a half days a week, you go to work, you wear a certain kind of clothes, you conduct yourself in a certain way, you know, and there are certain metrics of uh, achieve, external metrics of achievement and success that you are taught to follow. But we all have this other thing, which I have called, I've come to call in the search, a scripture. And like any scripture in culture, what is scripture made of? It's not a single kind of text. There's stories, right? There's parables, there's lessons, there's homilies, there's tension, there's narrative. We all have this scripture inside of this. And if there's really anything that I'm trying to do in this book, it's to coach people up and help people through the process of listening less to the script that they inherited and more to the scripture that they're trying to tell. Because Mm -hmm. the, the headline if I were to kind of summarize in, you know, kind of one bullet point, if you will, of what I learned, you know, what the homily that I would give from this project is, is that fewer people are searching merely for work anymore. And more people are searching for work with meaning. That we are moving in effect from a means-based economy to a meaning-based economy. And that takes place over a long period of time. And, part of it, and we can get into it, is that meaning changes over time, like sometimes it might be self-expression, sometimes it may be money, sometimes it may be, you know, protecting your family, sometimes it may be giving back, whatever. But the opportunity of this fluidity and this change in how we think about work led, I will say, by the fact that the workforce is younger, majority female, more diverse. So as the workers are changing, we are changing the the narrative around work. And so more people want this meaning, but the problem is they don't know how to achieve it, which is why the bulk of this project is giving people the tools to identify what is the meaning that you have right now? What is the story that you want to tell? And here's how to go about uh, setting out to achieve that.
4: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
3: plushcare.com slash weight loss.
0: Well, let's do this. First, let's talk about the four worst pieces of job advice, you know, that kind of are part Mm, of the traditional narrative (laughs) and then kind of use that to get into the framework of this whole work story idea. Because I know that throughout this, there are numerous prompts and questions that you pose to sort of craft this work story. But I think we should start with these sort of four core you know, ideas that are kind of part of the dominant narrative of careers.
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, like this whole conversation and what I appreciate about this conversation is that first of all, it has the oxygen to breathe and that's a credit to you and, and, and your, the community you've built that we, we, we can dig into this more. There are kind of two parts of this. One is identifying the script and then trying to move beyond it and then writing your own scripture. So you're right. Let's start with the script. And so Yeah, I think there's two frames here. One is there are three lies that we've been told. The script is built on three lies. Lie number one, you have a career. You don't have a career. Okay, the idea of a career was invented 100 years ago by a guy named Frank Parsons in Boston in 1908. So the idea that once in your life, in your early 20s, you're going to pick a field and you're going to then do that for the next 40 years, that was always a historical aberration because for most of human history, people lived where they worked and worked where they lived. And we never had the word career, essentially, until the late 19th century. So. That's line number one, you have a career. Line number two is that you have a path, right? And if you think about the ways we talk about career, right? Career track, career path, career ladder. What do all those things have in common? They're all linear constructs. <laughs> and that's yep. essentially a byproduct of the 20th century when we were enthralled with linearity because of the industrial world that dominated at that time and the conveyor pelt and the factory floor. These were all linear Oh, ways of making things. And so all the ideas in the, in the 20th century were about linearity from, uh, you know, Freud's psychosexual development, the eight stages of moral development, the five stages of grief. These are all linear constructs and they're all wrong and they all did a lot of harm because we all expected things to unfold in a line, but they don't unfold in a line. <laughs> and yeah. you know, the essence of my last book, Life is in the Transitions is about, you know, life quakes and how we get in this and the essence of this is work quakes, right? And we basically get our lives get interrupted, right? Uh, Twenty times in the course of our lives, and and half of those begin outside of the workforce, right? So that's mm-hmm. that's the second lie, and the third lie is that we don't have a job. So the well, this has led to, and back to the spirit of your question is what what's the bad career advice that we get? <laughs> so to highlight one, I think that that people have heard a thousand times is follow your passion, mm-hmm. decide what you want to do, and then do it. That sounds amazing, but it applies to almost no one. Yeah. Because the idea that you know your passion at 22 is absurd. Totally. I mean, find me. I mean, look, some people do this. Some people want to be doctors and they could become doctors and that's what they do. Some people want to be lawyers. Some people want to be painters. But really, look around. Anyone listening to us, you know, a lot of people who start off, you know, doing one thing, maybe because of, self-expression or creativity, and then they maybe they get married and settle down and they need to somehow support their family and they go do that for a while. And then we also know a lot of people who chase that linear external metric definition of success. That worked, they had a family, they made their parents happy, and then they get to 45 or 55 or 62 and say, oh my God, I've been doing this. I've been miserable my whole life. Now I want to give back or do something for myself. And they pivot again. So these pivots happen Every two and a half years, and that number is only quickening. So when you ask people, as I did, did you uh, follow your passion, follow your bliss, right? Um, You know, discover your bliss or make your bliss. Only 15% of people said they followed their bliss. 85% did one of the other two. Either they discovered it by doing something and falling in love with it, or um, they created it. Mm-hmm. perhaps in their main job, but back to you have, you don't have a job or sometimes with their side job or their hope job or these other things that we do because what's non-negotiable here is that people won't work with meaning. Yeah. Um, and the question is, how do you get it and what is the meaning um, at the particular life moment that you're in now?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it, when I saw that, it reminded me of I've book, so good they can't ignore you where he really kind of just tore the passion narrative to, to shreds, right? And I, I said, you know, like if you, Follow your passion only to realize that, one, you're not very good at this thing and nobody will pay you to do it. You have you know, a very expensive hobby or, you know, you're More often than not, I was like, you know, following your passion is a road to poverty
6: for a lot of people.
1: Yeah, and also, by the way, your passion changes, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, we all know people who, who discover, I, mean, I alluded to this earlier, I'll pause and tell it. I mean, I was a 43-year-old adult man and the father of three-year-old identical twin daughters when I suddenly had uh, a life-threatening cancer in my left femur. And even more, I I wrote a book called Walking the Bible that's been a year and a half on the bestseller list. And I made a TV series about it for, for PBS. I was known as the walking guy. And suddenly I was looking at never walking again. Like I was on crutches for two years. Okay, I was on a cane for a year after that. I didn't leave my bed for a year. So if my whole identity was built around this passion of walking, well, guess what? I needed a new identity, and it turns out that I'm not alone. Over and over, there's a story, as you know, that that's one of my favorite stories. It's in the opening chapter. That's how much I like it. Of this guy who grew up in the FBI. Okay, he was in the computer the computer arm of the FBI, and he rose to become the head of intelligence for the entire Federal Bureau of 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 uh, investigation, like one of the top. Intelligence jobs in the entire United States government. And then he retired and went to work at Disney and rent security for Disney. And he was watching the documentary Finding Neverland about Michael Jackson and those boys. And he turned to his wife and he said, That happened to me. And he discovered this long suppressed memory that he had been abused as a kid. And he walked away from an $800,000 a year job working for the Walt Disney Company because he said, I would drive home from work, and I would look at people who were working as mechanics, you know, and menial uh, blue-collar jobs who would have envied and killed everything to have my job, and I realized I wanted to be them because they were happy, because he prioritized his mental health over these external metrics. I tell this other story, which I love, this story of Maroy Park, who joined joined the CIA after graduating from college. And she was on the Soviet desk at the time that that was the most elite desk in the entire US government. And she said, you know what? There's this logistic side of the CIA. I think I can make more impact there. And her friends were like, are you insane? <laughs> you're, you're doing the most prestigious thing and you're testifying before Congress and you want to run payroll for the CIA. What happened to her? She rose to become the first Asian American uh, director of the entire Central Intelligence Agency. So a, thing that happened in common, and this this is like the bad career vice. To me, a thing that I kept discovering, and I I I had a hard time naming it, which is why this is the very last page of the search, is that every story of somebody who is happy at work contains one thing in common. And that thing is an unright choice, okay? It's taking the unright um, uh, uh, position. It's making the unright Uh, the the unright choice in whatever you do. And that unright choice, and I'm purposely not saying wrong, but that unright choice always disappoints somebody. It disappoints your parents. It disappoints your spouse. It disappoints your colleagues. It disappoints somebody. But the only way to make the right choices for you is to sometimes make the unright choices uh, to other people. Wow. Well... You know, I
0: think that that makes a perfect segue into sort of, you know, how we begin to, you know, rewrite what we call, you know, the, what you call the work story that we all have. Um And I know that it's a, a pretty layered framework. So uh in the interest of time, can you walk us through how we do this? Because I know that you pose a number of different questions, which it would take us forever to actually go through every single one. But I want people to understand kind of, you know, how we look at the past, how we look at the present, how we, you know, think about the future based in the context of this sort of
6: mental model that you've given us to think about work.
1: Uh, I appreciate that. So the three lies, you have a career, you have a path, um, you have a job. All those give way in the present to what I call the one truth, which is that only you can decide what brings you meaning and only you can write your own story for success. And the emphasis here is on only you. I interviewed the guy who kind of created where career counseling has moved uh, in the last generation, a move that pretty much nobody in the planet is uh, that much aware of, which is basically toward what they call narrative career construction, which is the idea that you have to construct your work story, um, as I call it in this book. And he said, usually when I meet somebody, I know within five minutes (laughs) of what they should be doing, but my job is not to tell them. My job is to help them discover it. Okay, so how do you discover it? So that's why the second half of my book to simplify the structure, you know, as I think about it now is like 21 questions to find work you love, okay? And to geek out on the science for a second, because I think that there's value in this. We talk a lot about happiness and happiness is a fleeting moment, okay? It's how you feel right now. But actual meaning is more valuable than happiness. There's great research on this, which I quote in in the search from Roy Baumeister out of Florida State. And what meaning is, is it stitches together past, present, and future, okay? Because happiness is about being happy, but meaning is often learning to accommodate things that may not make you happy (laughs) into finding meaning from, you know, the pandemic is a perfect example, right? Of, I went through this chapter and I was this and now I'm that. That's an essence, the essential act of storytelling is what we're talking about here. So how do you tell this story? And so I've tried to break it down into 21 questions to find work you love. And because the essence is past, present, and future, some of those are about the past, some of them are about the present, and some of them are about the future. So the first one is the one you asked me at the outset of this conversation, right? What are the upsides and downsides that you learn from your parents? So what is that? That's what I call a who question in the who, what, when, where, why, and how framework, because that's really what you, in, you don't that's what you inherit. Like you don't pick your parents. So therefore, you you, you, you can't control really the lessons that you learn from them. what question, which I think is very valuable, is who were your, other than family, who were your role models as a child? So let me ask you, so uh, you know this was coming because you read the book, and again, Mm -hmm. I salute you for that, but who, other than parents, who were your role models as a child? You know, I I was thinking a lot about this. And what did you value in them? Yeah, you know, because it it took me until,
0: I I realized it was like the people that I would have looked at as role models, I didn't even think of until I got to about ninth grade when I, I looked at that question, I was thinking about it. Um, one was my ninth grade band director because of his absolute commitment to like seeing me accomplish what I could, I mean, I've never had a teacher who just, you know, out of the goodness of his heart, like made me his personal project and, you know, drove me to, you know, make all state band three times. And I mean, he was the kind of guy who would stay after school every day to work with me and, you know, like he wasn't being paid for it. So that always struck me. Um, and I think it was the fact that he was so committed to somebody else's you know, success was what really stood out to me. That was the first person that came to mind. And I, I actually wrote about him in, in one of my books. And I said, you know, like, of all the people in my life, he deserves far more credit than he would ever get.
6: Uh, you know, he's one of those people behind the scenes that so, made so much possible for me. That's a beautiful story. And I'm, I
1: mean, I, I just feel in my heart listening to you. But I want to say a couple of things. First of all, I love nothing more than you're saying when you're reading this in the book, you're thinking about it because that's what it turns out people do. It's interesting when I've shared this book, this book is, you know, as we speak, just preparing to go on sale. And so it's just been being encountered by readers and when people call me up. They're not talking about me or the book. They're talking about themselves, which to me is a sign that the process is working. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's point number one. Point number two is I call this um, role model question a what question because in effect, what matters is not who the role model is. And in fact, the most common are people you mentioned, like teachers or coaches or preachers, right? Or often celebrities, people you don't even know. It's a what question because the real question is what did you admire about them? And in effect, This role model question is your first decision that you make about work. Okay. The people that you choose to admire and sort of model your life and your own conduct after are making your first decisions about work. And here's why it's powerful. One thing I've learned. Okay. What did I tell you? I said to me, like the value of a question is only in the power of the answer. And one of my rules of thumb is to listen to the first thing people say. And what was the first thing you said about this person? He allowed you. To see yourself. Yeah. And what is the first thing that you said to me in this conversation? I don't want to turn the camera on because I don't want to see you. I want to see you as you really are. In effect, I want to hear you. I want to understand who you are. And if I look at you, I'm going to be distracted. To me, that is a direct line between the decisions you made. In ninth grade, that's when you're, we'll say, 15 years old, that whatever you want to do, what's important to you is to see people who they really are and help them become better. And I could draw a direct line between that and what you're doing now, which is bringing people like me on, trying to see them for who they are and to listen to the story that they have to share with the goal of helping the people who are listening to us. That is the power of this process. If you ask these questions of yourself or someone you love who's struggling with what they do, there is no chance that you will not have moments like we just had because the process is that powerful. And I'm almost prepared to say invincible.
0: yeah. Yeah, we will have to either, you know, put together a list of these 21 questions for our listeners to download, or obviously we're going to encourage them to go and buy the book, but um, yeah. So I think that that, you know, you're right. Like when you say it like that, it makes so much sense because I, you know, like I realized what he was doing is enabling me to see often what I couldn't see in myself and get things out of me that nobody else could. And I realized like yes. what I pride myself on as a podcast host is being able to get people who tell me things that they don't tell anybody else on any other show um, and really kind of, you know, basically peel, you know, an onion and get, you know, far beyond the surface of what they do and, and really understand who they are.
1: And if I could interrupt, because I know you're about to ask a question, but the risk of interrupting, let me just say, what were we discussing in the first half of this conversation? We were discussing in the first half of this conversation, the scripts from others that we inherit that are imposed on us, Mm -hmm. from our families, from our culture and ethical traditions, from the institutions that we attend, from the magazines and the podcast, right? So what you're saying you're committed to, which is in effect what I'm saying I'm committed to, and even more important, what this... Band teacher is that's not where we think career counseling and career advice is coming from. A band teacher, right? But what he's doing is helping you discover your own script. He's not saying you must go to Juilliard, right, or you must go to Michigan and dot the, you know, and 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 uh, was it Ohio State that they dot the i, or is it Michigan where they dot the i? Maybe it's Ohio State where they dot the i. um, As the maître, whatever it is, the the maestro of of the of the marching, he's not saying you follow my script. He's saying, let me help you discover the script that you don't even know is inside of you. Mm-hmm. That's the change that's going on in our own work. And that is what we should be celebrating. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one thing
0: that you say in the book, you know, we have, we all have moments in our lives that are defined by this confluence of work, fate, and time of who, what, and when. And fully actually is this moment yeah. just to grapple with all three of these dimensions, including the one that most people struggle with, timing. Is now the right time for me yeah. to make this move? Is now the right time to pursue my idea? Should I post-pause? Should I stay? And he said, knowing when your story starts will help you tell a better story because all good stories on some level involve a break in time. And the moment I read that, um, it got you know, I it think it's fitting that I'm reading this book while I'm here in Brazil because um, I was thinking about what that moment was for me. And it was when I stood up on a surfboard for the first time. You know, I mean, sadly, I've been out of the water for two years and not surfed at all since I've been here in Brazil. But um that was kind of when I, like, I connected the, the dot to that moment and thought to myself, yeah, you know what? Like, I wouldn't be where I am today. Like, none of that would change. In fact, I had to, been thinking about a trip down to the southern part of Brazil where I caught my first wave. And then I realized, wait a minute, I should absolutely go back there. It's like a pilgrimage to
6: where everything changed. Let's go back and see what happens if I go back again.
1: Well, I, um... I love that you, and this is again, your commitment to reading the book and, and makes me happy that the book is speaking to you, uh, in these ways. And that's is someone who's written a lot of books. I've written 15 books and had seven New York Times bestsellers and blah, blah, blah. But what is always most surprising to me is you, is you never can guess what people are going to respond to, right? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. and that. That I always say my goal is not to give you five or six or seven ideas, but it's to give you 150 because a hundred of them aren't going to apply to you, but five of them are going to really speak to you in the moment that you're in now. And it's interesting that you say you like to get people to tell stories they don't normally tell. And I'm going to excuse myself and cough for a second (laughs) and take a sip of water. Um, You know, I love that you said that you want to get people to tell stories. So I don't often tell that story of me and in Kyoto, Japan, writing that letter on crinkly hair mail paper. But for me, that's when my work story began, because that's when I realized that I like this immersion into a different world. And then I like to immersing, you know, emerging from it and telling and sharing it with others. It was that act of, of, you know, sort of, I don't know, translation, if you will, between the world and the outside world. And that's what's motivated me to try to keep doing what I feel grateful to be doing. Um, yeah. So, but let's talk about when for a second. So, Again, so the the building block of these twenty one questions to find work you love, and I'd be more than happy to share them with you to share with listeners um, on your on your uh, website or newsletter or whatever you know blog you have. All of those I know, um, yeah. is that um, a good story is is who, what, when, where, why, and how, and I do them in that order specifically because the problem in work is that we put how too early. So if it's how to get a job. There's no how about that. Beef up your resume, you know, reach out to contacts, close and distant, right? You know, have a frame of mind, do informational interviews, et cetera. And the problem with that how is that it will succeed (laughs) and you will get a job. Uh, uh, But the problem is then if you don't do the the higher work, the digging work, in two and a half years, you'll be doing it again. So the purpose of putting how last is do the personal excavation in archaeology, as I call it, to figure out where you are now. And a very simple, and there, and there's a three when questions within this. Okay. So one of them is, as you say, when does your story start? Like if you say, when was the moment that the kind of energy gathered, right? And the change happened? What is storytelling is, right? A person living in an ordinary world and. Boom! There's a change, and then they go in a different direction. Okay, that's what every great story is, and it's why in my book I list some of the great first lines in history, and they all are about changes, uh, changes in time. I remember it was the day that well, years later I remember the story that the uh, that the rifle went off at the firing squad. That's the opening line, um, poorly paraphrased of hundred years of solitude. Right? It's like all there. It's a change in time, and for you, it's when. You get up on the surfboard. So what does that represent? I don't even know your personal work story, but I would assume from what I'm hearing here, it has to do with, ah, this is me. This is learning to ride the wave. This is, you know, what what, what is more oscillating than than a wave and what's more oscillating now than a story of life? But it's when I'm doing this for myself, because that was not in your scripture, you were not told. Son, you're going to go to an elite college and you're going to profess one of these professions and you're going to do great good to your name and to your culture. And the best way to do that is to be on a surfboard, right? That was not the story you were told. <laughs> um, I'm, um, I'm, I'm going on a wild limb and guessing that wasn't the story you were told. But so this is a wild is that limb at all? To you. Okay, <laughs> fine. So um, even with your California background, right? But, but the why yeah. does it matter to you? Because this is saying I can do that other thing, but I can also be on a surfboard because that's important to me. So that's when it begins. Then if you so that's the past question, right? Then the present question of the 21 questions that are related to when um, is do I stay or do I go? And that's a really hard question for people. And what was interesting and digging down in that, in the answers that I heard, was that people chose different things. They did, they would give them a buffer zone. Like, I'm gonna give myself 18 months. And I did this, remember, when I left a stable job in Japan to come back home to write this book about Japan that became learning to bow. Um, it was like I'm going to give myself 12 months to see if I can make this dream happen, and if not, I'll go find another dream. So people do that; they they create a buffer zone, right? The other thing, remember, I said we don't we didn't really get into this, but I said we don't have a job. Why? Because we have main job, and only half of us even half of us even have one of those anymore, and side jobs and what I call hope jobs. And often what we do is we use our side job or our hope job. And by the way, what is a hope job? A hope job is something you're doing that you hope. Become something else like selling jewelry on Etsy or writing a screenplay or, you know, selling pickles at the farmer's market. We will do our side job or our hope job at the same time as our main job as a way of testing it out. Okay. So we have our stable job and then we do our side job. And then maybe that, by the way, this is where most entrepreneurs begin. Then maybe we jump to do this entrepreneurial activity, but then our side job is something we do for money while the entrepreneurial thing is getting off the ground. So Again, we, we allot and we move and we're fluid. Like we get our meaning from this job and often we get our money and salary and benefits from another job. And that's the opportunity of this nonlinear work life. And then all that leads to one when question, which is the future question, which again, we can do right now. You know, answer this question. In fact, I'll ask you. So fill in this blank. I'm at a moment in my life when...
0: I am, uh, you know, finding that, uh, you know, 13 years of doing interviews is leading me down this weird sort right. of odd path of exploring what's possible with AI simply because I have, you know, access to way more information than the average person does. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so it's, it, in fact, I'm starting a new company. Uh, it just literally the website went live today and I just signed my first client yesterday. Uh, it's called workflow workflowgenius.ai, which, you know, like I, I would not have p- predicted that 10 years ago. Um, yeah, you know, when I started this, uh, so, but I would also say like, I'm in a moment in my life when I'm thinking you know, uh, I'm 45, I want to be in a position where I can start a family and have, you know, the finances to do that. So it, it's, you know, yeah. I, and it, I think some of my priorities are changing. Like I have a seven month old nephew and it's funny. I talk to, you know, I talk to my sister every day specifically so I can talk to him, even though he's seven months old, but you know, it's
6: one of those things that's just become part of the day to day now.
1: Again, I love this answer, and I think in it is the model of where we are now, okay? So number one, you're in a moment when you're starting a company in a field that did not exist 10 years ago or was only in the lab 10 years ago, right? And frankly, 10 weeks ago, you might not even have thought this, but we're in a moment when when a technology has created a new opportunity and that turns out to dovetail with skills that you have and interests that you want to pursue. So that's one of the reasons you can't follow your... Follow your passion. Yeah, I want to start a company in generative AI. Right? I mean, eight months ago that would have seemed absurd. Right? No less eight years ago, no less eighteen years ago when you graduated from college. So again, one of the things is life changes all the time, and even our skill sets evolve over time. Okay, so you're in a moment you want to start a company, but you're also in a moment where you're thinking more seriously about family. Okay, and so that suggests that in two or three years you might be. I'm in a moment in my life when you know what I want to prior. I have young children. I want to prioritize that. Okay, so maybe I'm not going to start a company now. So maybe I'm just going to stick with this other job. It gives me stability because I want to spend more time with my family. And that, again, is where we are and why the essence of this project and these 21 questions to find work you love are focused on not you three years ago, five years ago, or even three months ago. It's you right now accepting the reality and the opportunity and sometimes the curse that we can revisit this at any moment in time uh, for no other reason than we want to. And that is the opportunity and what it means that only you can define your meaning and only you can write your own story. It's a burden. Sometimes we get writer's block trying to write our work story because there's so many different directions we can take it. But that's why my mission, I'm at a moment when (laughs) I'm about to be an empty nester, right? I'm going to be, you know, refiguring out my family because I'm going to go from a full nest of uh, two kids at home to zero kids on the afternoon of August 20th (laughs) when I drop my kids off to college. But I'm in a moment when I want to use my questions and my storytelling um I- experience to help other people tell their story. And that's why the essence of my work is to try to give you the tools to do something because I'm a professional storyteller. So I'm, you know, I have a little bit more experience. And the reality is each of us, anyone listening to us, you know, you're writing your own story of success. You're just probably not not writing it as good as you might be and effectively um, as you might desire. And certainly, you know, as meaningfully as you deserve. Mm.
0: Well, I, I have two last questions for you. Um, so you, one thing that you had mentioned uh, earlier was, you know, seven books on, on the New York Times bestseller list. And we live in this world where just social comparison is kind of just almost inevitable. And I'm thinking about this just because uh, my friend Ryan Holiday's book, uh, Daily Dad just came out. and Ryan is kind of, you know, like, the publishing industry's darling at the moment, like literally on every show. But something stayed with me that he said, and he said, you know, like, you would think that, you know, everybody thinks that, you know, okay, he must wake up every day and think, you know, life is amazing. Like, I get to do all these things. And he said, don't get me wrong. He's like, I have, you know, the job that millions of people would kill for. I get to write the books that I want to write. And he said, but the thing is, if you think about it, nobody does that, right? And he said, basically, everybody thinks, okay, you know, whatever that next level is, it's like, oh, it's not, you know, a, you know, like the highest, you know, home run in the World Series. It's a grand slam. Then it's a, like, oh, it's the highest salary in baseball. But the, the thing that he said about all that, he said, you know, it's good on the um, aggregate because it drives a lot of achievement. And that, you know, he said, if nobody, you know, if everybody wanted to be senator, nobody want, would run for president. But he said on the individual level, it's a lie because it doesn't lead to the satisfaction that you think it will. And of course, you know, mm-hmm. like it's, you keep thinking to yourself, yeah, okay, fine, Ryan, like, great. You're, you know, you've got <laughs> five books on the New York Times bestseller list at the same time. Like, you know, it's easy for you to say that. And on the one hand, like, I know that consciously. Um, so like, how do you think about that? Like, how do you think about success and how is that whole definition of what it means? Um, with age change because by you know if we look at traditional metrics of success we've had multiple New York Times bestsellers like that's you know in, in our industry that's you know the kind of you know gold standard in a lot of ways.
1: Well I love this bringing up Ryan's work and because what is the essence you know in some ways the backbone of of, of what he talks about with the Stoics I actually as it happened spent last summer living in Athens uh, because my children are classicists and they're interested in the ancient world and uh, we'll graduate from high school kind of randomly and somewhat oddly with six years of ancient Greek and six years of Latin. And so we spent the summer in Greece. And as part of that, um, I got a tour because I brought a lot about archaeology over the years, uh, of a, a newly excavated part of ancient Athens, including the Stoa, which is this, uh, indoor outdoor sort of, um, um, I don't know what to call it. Like one of those things where it's almost like the area outside of the, a White House, right, where there's a building on one side in columns and it's sort of a half enclosed walkway and half not. And that was the Stoic where the philosophers would sit and, you know, propound their theories, which is actually what gave name to the Stoic. And so what is the basic building block of of Stoic ideas? It's you can't control um, what happens to you. You can only control um, how you react to what happens to you. And this has been on my mind because a, a sort of I wouldn't say mentor because I met him later in my life. But sort of hero and sort of a figure that I've admired died last week, and his name was Harold Kushner. And Harold Kushner was a rabbi at a synagogue in Natick, Massachusetts, um, in 1966. When and he had a son named Aaron, and he gave uh, his wife gave birth to a daughter named Ariel. And 12 hours after Ariel was born, uh, Rabbi Kushner and his wife Suzette learned that their son Aaron had progeria, which is an a rapid aging disease, and he wouldn't live into his t- uh, out of his teens. And in fact, he died at age fourteen, at twenty five pounds, having never matured. And Rabbi Kushner was a rabbi, and he's—I it, mean—he's not a particularly—I mean—I've met him; I admire him so much. He's not a particularly charismatic person. He's not physically commanding. His voice is kind of squeaky. Like he's not the person you would—you would. You would um, identify as a celebrity, but he became a celebrity because he wrote a book called When Bad Things Happen to Good People, and it sold 4 million copies and made him an international celebrity. And the essence of that book is the essence of the Stoic idea, right? Which is, everybody wants to ask, why do bad things happen to good people? Or in the case of maybe what we're talking about success, why good things happen to bad people? <laughs> but he said, the question is not why do bad things happen to good people? Which is the question that all of us ask. It's what do we do when bad things happen to good people? And I think that that is how I think about success now is to reiterate something I said earlier. The majority of destabilizing events in our work lives do not begin in the workplace. 55% of them begin in our lives, okay? In our bodies, in our families, in our health, in our minds. We get on a surfboard and we change our minds. Uh, we see something changing in society like generative AI, and we say, I want to start a company. That didn't come out of maybe what you do, even though some of the skills you're gonna draw, and it became out of something that happened outside of your existing workplace. So we are at a moment now where success is defined primarily not by what you do at work. It's what you do in your life and what you choose to prioritize um, and what you choose to value. And if you've taken away one thing from this conversation is that can be different at any moment in your life and will be different at many moments in your life. So stop believing that a star, that, excuse me, stop believing that success, I grew up watching the the, the, the Tonight Show when I was in Savannah, Georgia. And how did that work? Johnny Carson would come out from behind a a, uh, curtain and stand on a star that was painted onto the floor. And that's what we used to think success was. It was a star you had to reach on the floor. That's what's not true anymore. There's stars all over. Some you can see and some you can't. You can move. You can stand on different ones in different times. And the worst thing you can do is say success is only achieving one place by one metric. Success is not status. Success is story. You control that story. Tell a story that makes you happy, brings you meaning, and gives you success on your own terms.
6: Wow. Yes. Uh, So I have one Final question for
0: you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at The Unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody
6: or something unmistakable?
1: I think what makes somebody or something or some story unmistakable is that it doesn't make unforced mistakes. I was having a conversation with my now young adult daughters as they head off into the world, and I was explaining to them, because they don't know that much about tennis, but I grew up playing tennis, what an unforced error is. And an unforced error, a mistake that you don't have to make, is is following someone else's story. If I say one thing to my children over and over again, like, don't do what you think I want you to do. Don't chase my dream. My dream is not for you to fulfill my expectation. My dream is for you to fulfill your expectations and for you to do the work, to figure out what you want to do. So the biggest mistake you can make is doing what you think I want. The way to be unmistakable is to figure out what you want and do that. And accept that it will change over time. And accept that it will weave and bob and be oscillating and be nonlinear. But the way to be unmistakable is to not make unnecessary mistakes.
6: Hmm. Beautiful. Uh, This has been one of my favorite
0: interviews of the year. Uh, I can see why AJ referred you. This has been absolutely phenomenal and just packed with so much insight and knowledge and wisdom. And um, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share all of this with our listeners. All uh, right. Where can people find out more about you, uh, your work, the book, and everything else that you're up to?
1: First of all, this was just a beautiful conversation. I appreciate the entire way you approach this and the insights that you have. And And I'm excited to to, to join your community of creativity. and. And, 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 un, and, and, un, and unmistaking. Um, I'm Bruce Filer. It's F E I L E R. You can find me on social channels at Bruce Filer. You can find me on Facebook at Bruce Filer author. I write a weekly newsletter called, uh, the nonlinear life uh, on which, among other things, I just wrote about Rabbi Kushner and when bad things happen to good people. That's at bruce My last book that we referenced a few times here is called life is in the transitions, mastering change at any age. It gave talk to a Ted talk and I teach a Ted course. How to Master Life Transitions in this new book that we've been talking about. And I'm just so grateful for this opportunity. It's called The Search, Finding Meaningful Work in a Post-Career World. You can get it, get it wherever you support your books and um, reach out. Tell me what stories and ideas mean the most to you. And let's keep this conversation alive. Amazing. And
6: for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that.
5: They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
0: Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? This isn't a story about tech taking over, it's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The 4 Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash 4keys. Use the number 4, K-E-Y-S, that's unmistakablecreative.com